Welcome back to the Hay Festival podcast. For this series, we're sharing events from our recent festival combined with revelatory backstage conversations with some of the world's greatest writers and thinkers on their private inspirations and interests. This week, it's wildlife writer Kate Humble's turn to give us a peek behind the curtain at her writing practices and everyday lifestyle, from walking and cooking to imposter syndrome and badly made candles. To start, here she is talking to Kitty Corrigan about her debut cookbook, Home Cooked, with the books photographer Andrew Montgomery, starting with the inception of the idea. As anyone who knows me well, I'm not, I, I'm a cook. I love cooking, but I'm not a cook. I'm not a, I'm not, I'm, I have no designs to be Nigella. Um, uh, she, I'm sure, will be very grateful to know. Um, so uh, I had no plans to ever write a cookbook. Um, and um, at the beginning of uh, the kind of, you know, the, the peculiar years that we've just gone through, um, I was actually supposed to be writing an entirely different book, which... Um, because of lockdowns and things, I wasn't actually able to do the research. And so I'd said to my publisher, um, uh, I can't do the book. Can I, can I defer it? And she said, yes, absolutely. Um, uh, and at the time, we were making a series on our farm. We were filming a series on our farm. Um, it turned out that, you know, because we were all locked down, um, people couldn't really do anything other than watch telly. Um, and, um, but, of course, you couldn't make telly either because you couldn't go anywhere and no one could mm. be in the same room. Um, and the, the, the man who runs Channel 5 um, suddenly sort of obviously realised that um, I lived, uh, you know, on a farm with animals and therefore animals produce stories... And not only that, that I'd married very well. Um, and I'd married somebody who knew how to make a, a, a you know, use a camera and direct a, a, a TV series. So he just went, hang on a minute, um, can't you two just get together and, and make something on the farm? And, and so we did. And, and then he just lobbed in this curveball of, oh, and do some cooking. And I was like, hang on a minute, you don't even know if I know how to open a tin of beans, let alone cook anything. Um, and I just cooked on the programme the stuff that I cook at home, which is incredibly simple stuff. Um, and I think partly because lots of people were at home and actually mm. were cooking or were having to cook mm. for the first time or, or cook more than they would normally do. And everyone got bored of their recipes, didn't they? And everyone was just sort of desperate for new, new things, Well, new everybody ideas. was making sourdough starter, weren't they? All everyone the was making sourdough, yeah. um, apart from me, who was making cow pats. So... Um, so, I, one of the, in fact, one of the first things I did was actually a response to that because I had totally failed to make sourdough. I tried, but had killed more sourdough starters than I care to admit. So I was making soda bread because that, ladies and gentlemen, is so easy and so delicious and I don't know why anyone bothers to make any other sort of bread. But, um, and I, I made soda bread on the telly because I thought, well, this is a great easy thing to do. And, um, and the response was kind of extraordinary and I started getting on social media, I started getting photos of my food that people were sending in. And so really, this was the kind of driver for the, even thinking about doing a cookbook. I would never have thought about it until, you know, lovely, perhaps slightly um, deranged viewers were saying, well, could we have your recipes? And so I suggested it to a publisher, to my publisher, and she said, don't do a cookbook. Really, really bad idea. Far too many of them out there, and you're not known for food, so don't do one. 
you know, unless you just want to send me a proposal anyway. So I sort of, you know, when you have an idea and you think, well, I don't want to completely drop it. Maybe I'll just put a proposal together and send it. And she said, you've got two days. So I, and she said, I need 80 to 100 recipes. So I sort of, I don't know, wrote things down like mum's chocolate biscuit cake and Ludo's cheese on toast and things like that and sent it off, not expecting anything. And then she came back and said, uh, actually, the sales team do want this book. You've got two months. And that's when I turned into the biggest monster in oh. the world. Because um, usually when I'm writing, um, and anyone here, I mean, you know, if you're doing your kind of homework or you've got any sort of deadline, I mean, you'll recognize this, mm. Kitty, from you your writing. You have to have a deadline. You have to, A, you have a deadline, but B, you know, nothing can get in the way of that deadline. And, of course, you know, when you're at home, um, suddenly things need hoovering becomes really important you know I might just clean the kitchen again I mean there's every every yeah. possible thing that can distract you you will be distracted by and I had two months I couldn't go anywhere because you know we none of us travel any restrictions yes. um and uh and and also we were filming at the same time so I had to write this book in the evenings um when you know my husband were also saying <laughs> any chance of any supper no I'm not cooking anything. I'm writing about cooking. Bugger off. Go and, you know, make toast. Um, and yes, I was a hideous, hopeless, vile wife for two months. Now, of course, I'm lovely again. Seasonality was the thing that struck me as well. Getting the right seasonal feel when you've only got a certain window to get it in is quite a, quite a challenge, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we had that challenge where, you know... Most cookbooks are shot in ten days, um, and obviously this is a this is a, this is one of those books. It was set for ten days, but obviously that's as Kate says that seasonal aspect was really important, and that's why that that walk and that meeting was so crucial because it enabled me to kind of get the more wintry aspects um, that are obviously in the winter ch chapter of the of the book. When it comes to actually the food, because we're in a controlled environment, I can control the, the backgrounds, the lighting, and the, old, the actual atmosphere of those pictures to convey winter and autumn and summer and spring. But in terms of getting those environmental pictures, that's, that was a really important moment because I knew once, once you're into sort of April, there's leaves on the trees, and we were shooting a, mm. we were shooting a book in June and July, and that was it. There was, yeah. there wasn't. We didn't have a year. We, we literally had, well, we had ten days. But luckily, mm -hmm. this and I think there was one other um, little um, incidental sort of time show um, that we did before we started the book, where we nearly, we nearly. We did nearly fall out. We nearly fell out. We fell, yeah. I didn't fall out with you. So we, we did our walk and we started sort of planning uh, what sort of photographs we would do. Uh, kind of aside from the food photographs and and Andrew said well you know what's happening on the farm what's what's one of the key things and I said well you know obviously spring is very synonymous with lambing and you know we're going to be lambing uh sort of we we tend to lamb in two batches so late February and then again in um in late March and and Andrew, and I said so you know we're, we're kind of 
about to start lambing now. And Andrew said, well, great, I'll come up um, and, and get some lambing shots. And I said, OK, so we made a plan to do it. And it just so happened that the morning Andrew turned up on the farm was uh, after I'd done a night shift. So I wasn't looking or feeling my best. And the ewe in this photograph um, uh, gave birth to her lamb just before, well, about two hours before Andrew arrived at sort of four or five o'clock in the morning. And she's a young ewe. She's only, uh, and, and this was her first lamb that she'd ever had. So, and this happened sometimes. She gave birth, took one look at this little wriggly thing in the straw and went, I don't want anything to do with you. What the bloody hell's just happened? And bolted to the other side of the shed. And I spent two hours trying to catch her because what you do uh, after a sheep has given birth is you pen them up into a small pen so that they can bond together and they learn each other's voices so that they can find each other either when they're out in the big maternity shed or when they're out in the field. Um, so it's a really, really important time. Plus, that lamb needs the colostrum, the first milk, because that's going to give it all the antibodies that it needs. So it's hugely important. That first sort of couple of hours of life is hugely important. Anyway, I spent two hours trying to get this ewe together with her lamb. Finally got them into a pen. Andrew arrives. I've got bags down to here. I'm covered in every sort of bodily fluid you can imagine. And Andrew goes, oh, that would be a great photo. Opens the pen to go in. And she buggers off and I well every expletive that I could think of yeah so it wasn't I, a great start I like that was it that moment <laughs> and I was kind of thinking about this it was like you know any any bloke in the audience that's been married for sort of 20 years and basically <laughs> you do something to your, you know you do something at home that seriously upsets your spouse your wife and you know you're in the doghouse and you think <laughs> oh my god I've just you know I've done something I really shouldn't have then and, uh, you know, I've just really annoyed Kate Humble. Oh, OK, <laughs> this is a good start. And, and I could sense the rage and very polite rage at the time. <laughs> and I kind of, well, you know, we got, we got the shot. Um, and then I kind of... You I, got the shot. I then just kind of quietly just thought, you know what, now's the time to just go off <laughs> on the other side of the farm and, um, and, and just keep a low profile. <laughs> You can watch the whole event on our Hay Player by going to hayfestival.org forward slash hayplayer and subscribing. Back at the festival, I managed to grab Kate mid-snack for a chat about her life when the cameras aren't rolling. To start, I asked her when her love of nature began. I grew up in a time that some people would refer to as the Dark Ages, um, the 70s. So I was born in, in 68. Um, so my childhood was in that era when um, no one had invented screens. Telly wasn't 24 hours a day. There were only three channels, I think. Maybe even only two. And most of the time there was the test card. I grew up in the countryside and, and that was the greatest privilege, I think, of all was um, you could never be bored because there was always stuff going on. Um, and, uh, you know, to, to perhaps some kids now, modern kids, saying that it was really fun to collect snails and race them. They might think that that was actually the most tragic childhood that anyone could have. But I loved being part of the natural world in a very unconscious way. I wasn't like, you know, I've worked with wonderful people like Chris Packham and Chris, who's, 
who's, you know, unquestionably probably one of the, the finest naturalists I've ever met. But he spent his childhood obsessively collecting he collected things he's still got, I've seen them, um, you know, sort of old cigar boxes full of kind of specimens, whether they were feathers or eggshells or beetles or, you know, he collected like mad. I wasn't that sort of kid. For me, I suppose my collections were, were kind of, they were observations. Um, they were things like um, knowing where the snails or which plants the snails most like, liked to hide behind or you know, which hedges um, birds would nest in and you'd watch the birds collecting nesting material and then go and creep up very quietly and, and, and peep through the branches of the hedge and, and to see the eggs and to count them and to notice the colour of them. And, 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 and as I say, it was just, it was part and parcel of my childhood. Collecting caterpillars and putting them in jars and tadpoles and that kind of thing was just something that we did it didn't feel like it wasn't a great scientific experiment um uh i didn't feel like you know i am a, a budding naturalist it was as i say it was part of growing up and it's something that i feel incredibly grateful for now do you feel like you see many of those kind of specific observations cropping up in your work still that kind of give you a, a sort of hit of nostalgia um i think I suppose in a funny sort of way, again, growing up with a very visceral connection to the natural world um, and being, uh, being able to be immersed in it because I was in the countryside, you know, we had a garden, but beyond that was the place that, you know, I spent my time. We, we, we didn't have the distractions, but perhaps also we didn't have the nervousness that a lot of modern parents have had of, of sort of safety. There were no roads near. I mean, I, I know it sounds like there were also T-Rex probably wandering <laughs> around. It wasn't that long ago, but, but, you know, I grew up down a lane. There wasn't a road. We didn't have to worry about cars. We didn't have to worry about any of those things. It was just sort of fields and trees and things to fall off. I spent quite a lot of time in A&E because, you know, you <laughs> climb trees and then fall out of them. And that's what, you, that's what kids did in the 70s. Um, so... But I suppose what it gave me was a very early, as I say, sort of unconscious connection to not just to the natural world, but to the seasons and how the natural world behaves at different, you know, in, in different seasons. You're much more aware of, of, of not just things like temperature change and weather, but what, a, what the countryside looks like at different times of year and what animals do. And... And, you know, there are two times of year that kind of battle in my affections, I suppose. And one is spring and one is autumn. And that's probably because that's when the natural world, both those seasons are when they're busiest. Mm. And, you know, perhaps it's no surprise that I then enjoyed so much making programmes um, that were celebrating those seasons, which was Spring Watch and Autumn Watch, um, uh, you know, later on in life. And, and I don't, I don't think my childhood was the kind of uh, necessarily the, the qualification uh, that allowed me to do Spring Watch and Autumn Watch, but what it did allow me to do was when I was doing those programmes, I had that reference point. I had those, um, those childhood experiences that I could think back on, look back on, and as you say, reference, um, that had I not had that experience, had I not perhaps grown up, not just where I did, but when I did, 
that I wouldn't have had that otherwise. It's so it's so funny that the whole thing about seasons actually I I really try and celebrate that round here because we're so lucky to be on the doorstep of the Bracken Beacons and the Black Mountains and um, and so many people still will will not go out when it's nastiest outside. Yeah, and I always just think that just just go out in it. Just get experience out there. weather. Yeah, I mean you know it is it is a very well worn cliche and we use it quite a lot in Wales because you know maybe it does rain a bit more here than in other parts of the country. Not always though. Mm. Most of the time it's beautiful. But, you know, the, the well-worn cliche is there's no such thing as bad weather, just the wrong clothes. Mm. But one of the things that I found, I mean, we all do it. I've got, when you've got livestock and when you've got dogs, you have to go out, whatever the weather. And I won't lie, you know, there are mornings when you wake up and you hear the rain thundering against the windows and the wind howling and you think, the last thing I want to do is get out from under my nice warm duvet. <laughs> but I've got to because everything needs feeding and looking after. And actually you kind of rug yourself up and go out. And there's something wonderful, there's something wonderful about being in weather um, and not shielding yourself from it. I mean, you know, it helps that you know that you can go back to a nice warm kitchen and a cup of tea, having been out for a couple of hours. But as you say, just to miss it, just because you think, well, I'm gonna get a bit damp. Yeah. or my hair's not going to look great, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, then then you are missing out on something that is, you know, a very um, tangible connection to, you know, our natural world. You live in Wales as well, don't I you? I do. Um, and the Wye Valley, the way the rivers will flood and change level always surprises me. And it doesn't matter, sometimes it can be shed loads of rain and you'll think, oh, the river's really going to come up and you go past it and it just hasn't. And I find it so bizarre. And then other times you feel like it's just spitting and it's burst its banks. Well, I think the thing about, um, again, about having, having features like that that are part of your everyday views, your everyday landscape, your, your kind of almost like your punctuation points of your day, you know, whether it's seeing a river or, or seeing a particular view over a mountain, is that you realise that there is no such thing as just one picture, as one view. You can never, ever get bored of looking at one place. So just to give you an example, I actually spent some time living just outside Hay, just for a month in kind of February and March. I rented um, a, basically a small studio on the edge of the mountains when I was trying to finish a book, trying to finish, a, a, I had a deadline. And if I'm at home, basically, I get terribly distracted. The house has never been so clean. The chickens have never been so, you know, mucked out. The dog's like, please don't walk me anymore. You know, I'm exhausted. Um, so I have to take myself away from all those distractions and from polite society because I'm vile when I'm writing and deadlines and art. Um, so I lived outside hay. Um, and um, and I, I did have my dog with me because if I didn't walk, I would go mad. And walking is so good. Rebecca Solnit, who wrote a wonderful, I mean, she's written lots of very interesting books, but she wrote a wonderful book called Wonderlust. And, um, and in it, I'm, I'm gonna paraphrase because uh, I'm probably not quoting her directly, but she said, um, you know, when you're writing, you actually need to think a lot. But of course, thinking 
when somebody is looking at you thinking, they think that you're doing nothing. And she said in a very kind of production-driven society, doing nothing is not allowed. Mm. So she said walking is a great way of apparently doing something that actually allows you to think. And it's very, that's very much my experience. And I will, you know, when I'm stuck, when I think I don't know where I'm going with this particular bit of narrative or I can't begin a chapter or often walking, because you're... You don't, you think obliquely, if you like. You're not kind of thinking of the direct conundrum that you're trying to solve. Your brain sort of frees itself. Um, and, um, and so, you know, I did walk a lot. And there was a walk that I did kind of around the edge of hay. And it would go along the river um, for part of it. And I did it most days. And what was amazing about that was... It never got boring, that walk, because every day, and it, you know, I might do it at different times of day, I might do it in the morning, I might do it in the evening, I might do it in the middle of the day. It looked different. The river was behaving differently. The, you know, the, the clouds were behaving differently. The trees were moving in a different way. The sounds were different. There were more people, less people. You know, and that's one of the joys, I think, going back to your uh, sort of question about that connection with the natural world when I was little, is that you have your patch um, and lots of naturalists talk about that and it's really when you become very familiar with a place is really the only way that's the time that you start to learn because it's actually noticing those little differences that make you realize how things work how they fit together and that was one of the lovely things actually about as you say going out and and, and walking along the same river or the same stretch of river is is when you start to notice the differences and that's when you are properly connected to the you know the workings of the natural world and outside of um your day job i suppose as it is um do you feel like you have a hobby that is really really unlike it or that would surprise people what would surprise people you know, the tragic thing is, I'm very unsurprising. I really don't, I mean, you know, I don't have a secret wish to go and buy handbags. I don't know how to put makeup on, so I never buy that. Um, I hate dressing up. Parties scare me. Um, I genuinely, I suppose where I've got so lucky is that work kind of encapsulates all the things I love about life and so um, you know whether I'm working or not I really enjoy mucking out pigs walking the dog um, being out looking at birds um, I suppose I suppose you know I'm here at Hay this year to talk about a cookbook and that is as surprising to me as it perhaps to other people you know I'm not a I'm not a, a, a TV cook, I'm not a Nigella or a Jamie or a... Um, but in a funny sort of way, again, cooking is something that is part and parcel of the way that I was brought up, uh, where I was brought up, understanding seasons, the book is very seasonal. Um, and, and I'm not a... I'm, if anyone asks me to do a craft, like, I walk around here, um, I walk around the festival site, and there's all these people doing amazing, you know, beautiful, artistic, crafty things. You know, if, if you give me anything, 
someone asked me to make a candle once or showed me how to make a candle they made a beautiful candle I made something that looked like a dog turd <laughs> I mean it just did I, I don't know what I did that was different from hers but hers was beautiful and mine really really wasn't <laughs> so for me cooking in a funny sort of way is my um, sort of slightly creative output which is not to say that I spend hours with a piping bag I don't actually know what to do with a piping bag yeah um cooking should be simple if you've got lovely ingredients and again you know if you live in a place in a rural area where there are wonderful producers all around you you know Hayes got an embarrassment of riches as far as that's concerned frankly you don't need to do very much other than you know buy some beautiful vegetables and do as little with them as possible because they speak for themselves. But I do find one of the things I love kind of quietly, I don't admit this to many people, but I love kind of, you know, opening the fridge and, and maybe there will be women out there who, who recognise this and you've been at work all day or you've been away for work and you come back and you slightly hope that the husband might have, you know, bought something for supper and they haven't um, and you open the fridge and there's a few sort of sorry looking things in there but you go I can still make supper out of that <laughs> and I get an odd oddly sad kick out of the sort of ready steady cook of yeah well okay so we've got half a lettuce and a couple of carrots and a, I can do something I can do something I love that that's the sort of yeah so maybe that's my my tragic hobby that's obviously been a new venture for you in the cookbook this is a debut cookbook as well because very much a debut maybe <laughs> maybe the last one that anyone ever sees ah, well I was gonna say has that been nerve-wracking so yes yes well because I basically ever since the book came out which was in February I've had imposter syndrome quite rightly because I you know this is not my world um, and there are a lot of people out there who obviously, you know, they, they, they've trained, um, they've worked incredibly hard to bring out cookbooks. There are people who are infinitely finer cooks than me that would never get a publishing deal to, to write a cookbook. And I suppose I'm quite, when I get an idea in my head, I just think, well, I, I'm not, I'm not worried about failing. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, people worry so much about failing or about being a failure. And I've learned through failing quite a lot of various things that actually failure isn't a bad thing. It's a really useful, constructive thing. And you can't learn or grow unless you've made mistakes or, or things haven't quite gone according to plan. Um, and so I thought, well, actually, I've got this idea now. And even if it's turned down, I don't care. I just quite like the kind of academic exercise of can I put a proposal together that might work so yes it, it was a shock I mean I didn't really expect to do it and I suppose in a funny sort of way what I expected was that the book wouldn't be taken that seriously by the publisher or that they wouldn't they wouldn't invest that much in it not and that's not a criticism of them it is a real a, a realistic assessment of me and thinking, you know, I'm not a cook, as they say. So I imagined that they might bring it out as a sort of fairly simple kind of paperback, not, you know, not much done with design, you know, some sort of fairly kind of bog standard photos. You know the sort of thing I mean. And the fact that um, it was then, you know, as, as I started to write it and, and 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 send in drafts that they said oh right we want you know we want to 
get a really good photographer on this and we want to really think about the design of it, um, that I suddenly thought, hang on a minute, this is, these are, this is my food. I don't think this deserves this sort of, you know, this quite sort of elaborate treatment. But I'm really thrilled mm. that, that, they, that they did feel it was worth um, kind of investing in them that way because what I realised, having only written non-fiction, non-illustrated books before, which is a very, very lonely process, this was a tremendous collaboration. Yes, of course, the writing's mine, the recipes are recipes that I've collected, they're my mum's recipes, they're my husband's and my friends, you know, they're, they're, they're the, all the recipes that you have in your big old folder in the kitchen that keep falling out and, you know, you lose. Um, but the actual book is, um, is, 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 you know, for me, it's like a little personal treasure chest of, you know, my, my food memories and heritage together with beautiful photographs that are much of the landscape I live in and my animals and the farm as well as the food um, and the experience to work with really amazing uh, home economists and stylists um, and you know a, a designer who, who basically made the look, book look so beautiful and a really supportive collaborative publisher so it, it was a real joy to make. It was in a funny sort of way. It was all. It was more like a TV project than a book project because TV obviously is collaborative. There's lots of people involved, and and this was the same. And I probably took comfort in the fact that I thought, well, if it doesn't work, it's not entirely my fault because everyone else has been. <laughs> <laughs> Other people have been involved too. It was, it was the pictures. Yes, it was the yes. pictures that made yeah, it fail. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And you can buy Kate Humble's cookbook and her dog turd candles from the description on this podcast. <laughs> Kate Humble, thank you so much for talking to me today. It was a pleasure, Poppy. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Hay Festival podcast. Join me next Thursday when I'm with author Damon Galgut on his 2021 Booker Prize winner, The Promise. We'll be talking about observation skills and finding inspiration for writing. If you're enjoying the Hay Festival podcast, then give it a rating or tell your friends about us. This podcast was hosted by Poppy Evans and produced by Xavier Najado Achanith. I'll see you next week. <laughs>